with me and open your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. I want you to open to verse 25, and I'm going to begin reading verse 25 down through verse 37. And let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and especially the preaching of his word. Now, gracious Father, we have gathered this morning to worship you, to acknowledge with our brothers and sisters your glory, your majesty, your mercy, your love, Lord, your grace, Lord, that we might have our eyes to see these spiritual truths of the kingdom. And Lord, as we look at this parable of the Good Samaritan, help us to understand its use. Help us to see it for what it is. And Lord, may it strengthen us as believers. And Lord, especially if there is anyone here this morning that has yet to enter into the kingdom of heaven by faith. Lord, be to them, Lord, this morning, strength of salvation. Give them the grace to see, the heart to receive. Lord, bless them with your everlasting life. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I want to begin reading at verse 25, brothers and sisters. And the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, oh, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road when he saw him and he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds and pouring oil and wine on them and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Have you ever found yourself in a worship service where the pastor says something that you are not in agreement with? I mean, you're convinced that he's wrong and you can't wait to ask him a question. And the question you ask really has nothing to do with the answer. It's more in line with convincing the pastor that what he believes is wrong. Maybe you've done this to a Sunday school teacher, or maybe it's happened even with a parent. It's not uncommon for 
pastors and certainly religious teachers to get all kinds of questions, but not all questions are genuine. Not all questions are for the purpose of education or understanding or clarification. Some questions come with ill intent and motive. And that's the situation that Luke is recorded for us here. Jesus is confronted by a religious expert or a law expert. That's what a lawyer was in these days. He was someone who had an expertise in the law of God. They knew it and they could practice it or teach it. They could make judgments concerning it. I mean, they were the lawyers of their day. Not exactly like our civil lawyers, but close. And so the question that Jesus is confronted with is a good question, a very good question, but not one that is supported with a good motive. The lawyer has no intention of learning anything about eternal life. The lawyer, in fact, Luke records this for us Right there in verse 25, Luke helps us with this portion of his, of his gospel by saying, and a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And this is the same word used when Jesus is ushered into the wilderness to be put to the test by Satan. The point is that the lawyer wishes to embarrass Jesus before his disciples and listeners. He's not in belief at all that he is going to learn anything by the answer Jesus gives. That's not the point. Now, even though it's not recorded, I mean, some of us you know, you know, it's a, it's a bad character trait. It's one that I've had at times and I really try to remedy to put away from me is that, you know, to, to interrupt someone when they're talking or to ask a question and to interrupt the answer. Not even listening for the answer that's being given to me, but just going on as if it doesn't matter. That's similar to the attitude, to the heart, and the mindset of this lawyer. Now, beloved, this parable and what we have learned studying the parables is that they can be collected into categories and some parables relate or related to the uh, duties of the kingdom. What are the moral duties of the kingdom? And we've looked at those. And many scholars, well, put this in that collection. And then there are those parables that are related to how one enters into the kingdom of God. And some place it in that collection. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I believe, falls into the latter. It's not a parable that sets forth the duties of the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't misunderstand me. Am I saying we are not to love our neighbor? Oh, no. Am I saying we don't have a duty to our neighbor? Absolutely not. That would be going against Holy Scripture. But what I want us to see in context in a little bit is the context that Jesus uses this story that he makes up to answer the question of the lawyer and how he uses it and how this story used by Jesus, helps us to see how one is to enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
Now let me put it in another way. Jesus uses this parable as a hammer to self-righteousness. Jesus uses this parable as a hammer to self-justification. One that is seeking to inherit everlasting life and seeking to accomplish that by their own good deeds. And that's what I hope to prove to you this morning. Well, let's look at the context and not a complicated outline at all. We have a question The question comes from the lawyer, and we have Jesus answering him with a question. So you see the question there in verse 25. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Again, the question is a good question, yet it is undergirded with a wrong motive, an evil motive. He wants to test Jesus. He wants to prove Jesus wrong before his listeners. And Jesus, knowing this, even though the text doesn't say this, there are other places in the Gospels that the writers help us with Jesus knowing their intentions. In verse 6, what does Jesus do? He asks the lawyer a question. Notice what Jesus asks him. What is written in the law? How does it read to you? What Jesus says here is, what saith the Holy Scriptures? You, ask, you are asking me a question, but what saith the word of God? How do you understand this word? And that's a great question. Well, you are an expert in the scriptures, the law of God. What does it say to you? And in verse 27, the lawyer answers this question. This would have been an easy question for him to answer because this was something that they would recite at least twice a day. Out of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as your Self. I'm sure he was very proud of his answer. And then Jesus says to him in verse 28, well, you have answered correctly. Well, do this and you will live. Now, I've dealt with that statement on addressing the rich young ruler. The point that Jesus is saying here is, yes, you have answered correctly, but do you understand it? Yes, you must do these things if you are going to inherit eternal life. But do you understand what it is to do these things? Meaning, beloved, How many here this morning can rightly say that you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Have you? Have you not? Have you been consistent? Without interruption? Without lack of strength? I mean... The level of consistency and zeal, constant, consistent, without interruption. Have you been able to do that? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Now, that's the scriptures, that's the holy scriptures, and, and that is the, the summation of the two tables of the law. And yes, if you can do that, you shall enter into everlasting life. But the point that Jesus is going to make is that you have it. 
This lawyer is obviously very skilled in the law of God, but he's not very knowledgeable of his own heart. And that proves to be a problem, doesn't it? Or, and it's a problem for all of us, isn't it? But look at what he says. He says, in, in, in verse 28, and you have answered correctly, oh, do this and you will live. But look at verse 29. He comes back. The lawyer comes back for more. He says, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, and who is my neighbor? It seems like an odd question. I think given the story that Jesus tells, and again, this is not a real life event. Jesus is making this up. This is a story Jesus fabricates as an answer to his question to help him understand his predicament, his spiritual predicament. It's certainly reasonable to think that this lawyer is going to hear Jesus give him this category of neighbors that he can say, of course I do those things, such as a wife, your children, your parents, right? Your fraternal brothers, these other lawyers, these Pharisees, the fraternal religious order that you are a member of, love them. And that the lawyer would be able to check those off and feel good about himself. But that's not what Jesus is about to do. Jesus in no way is going to placate his pride and arrogance. But in a masterful way, expose it for what it is. Self-righteous and ugly. And completely inept for securing eternal life. Well, how does Jesus do this? Well, now he begins the parable So let's spend some time here. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Now let's look at the three characters of Jesus' parable. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus uses two religious orders in the parable to highlight their, well, their unloving attitude toward their Samaritan neighbors. We see a priest, we see a Levite, and then Jesus interjects a Samaritan into the story. Now, let's let's just... Think about a priest. Well, they were holy men. They were men of God. They were men who would offer sacrifices on behalf of sinners and themselves to God. They were supposed to be men knowledgeable of God's holy word. They were supposed to be men, as Hebrews talks about, have felt compassion for sinners They were men who certainly knew Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. They were certainly familiar with the Psalms that talked about mercy and grace and kindness and goodness. They were certainly been familiar with Exodus 23, 
That if a man sees his neighbor's ox in a ditch, what, what's his obligation to that neighbor to relieve the ox of that burden? Now, if brothers and sisters, listen to me. We, we know, and he would have known perfectly well, that was an argument from the lesser to the greater. That if we are responsible for our neighbor's ox, certainly we should help our neighbor if he's in need. His person. Well, this priest was very familiar with all of those passages. With all of those admonitions and commandments. And yet, the priest when meeting this man who had fallen into the hands of robbers, passes by on the other side. Now, now look, look, let's just get this straight here. When the, Jesus is talking about this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, this is no ordinary road. This is not a highway. From Jerusalem to Jericho, Jerusalem set uh, several thousand feet above sea level. Jericho set below sea level. There was about a 4,000 foot drop from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a steep. It was a very steep road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And it was windy and there are cliffs and caves and uh dangerous places, it's rocky, it's not easily traveled. It's, it, it's a place that's easy, number one, to get hurt traveling on just by walking on it. And it's certainly conducive to robbery. There's a lot of places for robbers to hide in order to capture and seize upon its victims. So this is the place that Jesus is referring to. And it's more than likely this man that has fallen into the hands of robbers is another Jewish brother. Which makes the condemnation for the priest and the Levite even more of a condemnation than if it was a Samaritan. So we have a priest, we have a Levite who's another uh, person, uh, another category of, of a religious fraternity. They were more of the temple police. They were more in the tone of keeping everything in order and functioning with the priest, uh, collecting the wood, helping with the sacrifices. I mean, kind of the manual labor portion of the temple services. But yet very familiar, would have been, had access to all of this religious teaching. They should have known better. They would have known these passages as well. They would not be able to plead ignorant. So the first two groups are very knowledgeable. Very knowledgeable. And would have, and in fact, these first two, the priest and the Levite, are certainly neglecting to obey scripture, neglecting to obey scripture. I mean, you have to see in the parable, there's a, there is an, 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 a point, right? He's not, he's touching the fraternal order of these attorneys and Pharisees, is he not? You, you, you have this knowledge, but you don't do what's right, you see. We know this, right? Because what does Jesus say like in Matthew 10, right? Matthew 11, he says, look what? You lay upon your brothers these burdens they are not capable of carrying. Come, why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see? So Jesus throughout his ministry, he condemned these religious leaders for laying upon the, the people these burdens that they were incapable of fulfilling. Not very loving and not considerate and certainly not compassionate. 
The text in Jesus' story, notice in verse 31 and 32, there's a statement given, and he passed by on the other side, and he passed by on the other side in both of those verses, meaning that they just went the opposite way. They, They avoided it. They purposely avoided coming in contact with the victim. They made a conscious effort to avoid having to help. Let's just go the other way. That's what they were saying. And Jesus points this out, unwilling. He points out that they are unwilling to help the victim. Who is their own countryman? Now, let's look at the Samaritan. Or, and, and let's understand something. There was a lot of bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, it started all the way back in the northern kingdom, the captivity of the northern kingdom. If you read Josephus, he has... Uh, a pretty good bit to say about the origins of the Samaritans. I mean, uh, when Assyria went in and captured the northern kingdom, they basically deported a lot of the Jews out of Jerusalem and then imported a lot of Gentiles like a replacement. They wanted to replace the Hebrews and they did this by bringing in all these Gentiles Well, over time, when some of the Jews came back from their deportation and whatnot, they, well, begin to commingle with these Gentiles and the Samaritans are the fruit of that that cohabitation, that commingling. They were considered half Gentile, half Jew, and the pure-blooded Jews wanted nothing to do with them. The Jews of the southern kingdom, if you will, wanted nothing to do with these half-breeds. And, and of course, the Samaritans were not innocent in all of this. They loved to provoke and to fight and just as the Jews did. In fact, if you go read uh, Ezra chapter 4, if you go read Nehemiah uh, and Sam Ballot, Sam Ballot would have been a Samaritan. They were antagonistic toward the rebuilding of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. They persecuted the people of God, the true people of God. You go back and read John 4 and you can read Jesus' correction of the woman at the well and when he corrects the woman's religious philosophy about their temple worship and Jesus calls her ignorant. You don't know what you worship. And Jesus did not accommodate their sensitivities toward uh, religious sensitivities. He, he basically rebuked her. They built their own temple and about 200 years before Christ, the Jews went in and basically destroyed it, the temple, their temple. And so there was a lot of bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, There was so much um, anger and animosity toward the Samaritans that a Jew would not even would not even dare put his holy sandal upon the dirt of Samaria. And that that was what they even said, that they were too holy to touch the dirt of such a polluted people. And they would walk around it. But of course, Jesus, being who he was and is, traveled through Samaria. And of course, there were appointments along the way like the woman at the well that he wanted to meet with and demonstrate that this salvation that he has offered is for all men. So the Samaritans were a people that the the Jews hated and typically the Samaritans hated the Jews. It was mutual. So Jesus uses a Samaritan as the good person in the story. Now you can imagine the thought going through this lawyer. You can imagine his heart swelling with anger 
that Jesus would use the Samaritan as the good person in the story. And notice what Jesus says. Now, let's look, and this is what Jesus does. And, 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 and now, listen, beloved, as I stated, and I'm going to prove it, that this parable is a hammer to self-justification. Why? Well, we see why did the lawyer ask the question in verse 29? Why did he ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? The text tells us. Why did he do it? Because he wanted to justify himself. He didn't want to be justified by God. He thought he could justify himself and would justify himself if Jesus would answer my question. Now let's look at this paradigm that Jesus gives to this lawyer using the Samaritan as the one who is giving out this compassion. Look there in verse 33. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. I mean, what a condemnation right there. Because what Jesus is saying is that the priest did not have compassion on his own countrymen. You know, that's one of the things that a priest is supposed to have as he ministers between sinners and God is what? Compassion. It would have been very common for people to come into the temple, into the offices of the priest and say, I have sinned before God. I have, I have, I have talked ugly to my wife. I've sinned against her. I've, I've sinned against my children. I've sinned against my, my servants and I've done these things and the priest would subscribe and he said, well, let's, let's offer these sacrifices on your behalf. He'd have compassion. And what Jesus is saying is the priest failed to have compassion. Now, brothers and sisters, do not throw a rock at the priest. Because you and I lack consistent compassion. We lack fervent compassion, consistent compassion. It's not, our compassion is interrupted. So don't throw a rock yet. So we see that what Jesus is pointing out, that if we are going to help our neighbor, it must come from the heart. It must come from the, the inward man. It's not just something we do outwardly. Let me do this and get you out of the way and shoo, 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 get out of here. Now be gone. Go on. Get along. He's moved with compassion. And compassion is something that doesn't come naturally. You may not have it. Well, if you're a Christian, you have it. It may need to be strengthened. You may lack compassion for your brothers and sisters. You may lack compassion for the world. You say, oh, rightly, burn it all down. Who cares? Not thinking about the results, the ramifications, the consequences. This is what's needed if we're going to give our enemies water when they're thirsty. Right? Now, I am not going to advocate, the love I'm advocating is not the Hollywood love. Okay? I'm not advocating this romanticism that Hollywood has indoctrinated our country with and the world with. I, no, I, it's, I, I find that putrid. And it's not biblical love. Biblical love can be rather corrective and directive and should be. 
So I'm not just talking about this easy fluff romanticism that's promoted by Hollywood or Walt Disney. Christians need to wean themselves off of those cultural icons and get back to the teaching of the apostles uh, and the gospels, well, in the whole scriptures, right? That's an amen. So he felt compassion upon him, and his compassion led him in verse 34 to do what? Minister to him, cater to him, sit down by him. Notice this man has been robbed, and it says there in verse 30 that they've stripped him and beat him practically to death. That's the point. That's the idea. That's the word picture. He's been pummeled almost to death. He's unable to help himself. He'd been beat to a pulp. And he's in need of someone helping him because he cannot help himself. He doesn't have the strength, possibly broken bones, certainly gashes and cuts on him are preventing him from doing anything. Weak because he's lost blood. His naked, he's been no long, we're not told how long he's been out there. We're not told where on the road he's been, but yet they took his clothes because remember, clothes were a, a large sum of money in those days. He's exposed to the elements, to the flies, to the, to the heat, to the cold. And here comes this Samaritan traveler, probably on business, I'm sure trying to get to where he's going because nobody wants to hang out on this highway. And he sees this man and he is filled with compassion for him. And he stops. And verse 34 tells us that he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. This idea that he's, he's taking his, his own resources. Did he travel with bandages? I don't know. Did he have to cut his clothes up to bandage the man's wounds? I don't know. He, he had them somehow the point that the text is making is that this man is, is using out of his own expense bandages and oil and wine that he would have used for himself to clean the wound with the oil, to lubricate the wound and to pour wine on it more than likely as some antiseptic to keep it from getting infected and then covering the wound so that it would not, you know, continue to collect dirt. I mean, these are acts. He's not just sorry for him, but his compassion moves him to act to the need of the moment, to his needs. Look what else he does. Not only does he give of himself, he's moved with compassion. His heart goes out to him. That's of himself. He gives of his resources, but now he's given of his time. He doesn't just bandage the man up and say, you'll be all right. Just pray. God will take care of you. You're good. No. He picks him up and puts him on his beast. Well, the picture is the man's not even capable of doing that for himself. And what does he do with him? Well, he knows the man's not able to care for himself. He puts him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and took care of him there. And on the next day, he's still with him. He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will return and repay you. Let's look at that. He gives of himself. He has compassion on him. He gives of his resources. He, he, he uses his own 
supplies to minister to the guy. Now he goes out of his way possibly to put him on his beast and take him to an inn. Now look, this, this would not have been like the Holiday Inn. These were rough places. You didn't want to go there because they were usually typically filled with robbers and, and thugs. And oftentimes the innkeeper could not even be trusted because he was on the take. I mean, these were not good places to be. And most moral people avoided those places because it was prostitution and there was just all kinds of immoral activity going on and well, at these sites. But he hazards those because he knows this man needs to find a place to rest. And he puts him there. Now, here's the other thing, that not only did he stay the night with him, maybe for safety, maybe just to, to let everybody know he's with me, don't take advantage of him, but then he lays himself open to liability. He writes, an, he, he, write, he signs a blank check in verse 35. Take care of him. Whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Israel did not have bankruptcy laws. If he would have lost his shirt, so to speak, in this liability, he would have had to sell himself into slavery. And yet, he gives the innkeeper two denarii, and some scholars say that's anywhere from 30 days to 60 days of accommodations. 30 days to 60 days of shelter and food. If more than that's needed, lay it to my account. I will repay it when I come back to check on him. So what do we see? Look at this story. Look what Jesus does. He says, first of all, the man gave of himself. Secondly, he gave of his resources. Thirdly, he, is, he lays out his time. He stops what he's doing. He takes the time to help him. And then he even jeopardizes his future with this liability by writing an, a blank check, giving it to the innkeeper and saying, hey, whatever is needed to help this man recover, it's on me. And Jesus, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the lawyer, he's very astute, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, well, go and do the same. Now, Jesus has told him, number one, you've answered correctly, go do it, and you'll have everlasting life. And then even after the story, Jesus says, go and do the same. Brothers and sisters, the point of the story is you can't love like this. You and I don't love like this. Even as Christians, do we? How convicting is this story to each and every one of us? How inconsistent are we in our love for God and our love for our neighbor? Now, what's the purpose of this? As I said, the purpose of the story is to shatter self-justification. Well, then what's the response? What should our response be to the parable of the Good Samaritan? Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, I don't love the way I ought to love. 
I don't love you the way I ought to love you. I don't love you to the degree that you're worthy of. And I don't love my neighbor. Even my wife, I don't love like this. My husband, my children, my friends. I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I mean, there are moments when I love them. There are times when I love them even a lot. But I love myself more than anything else. And the commandment is to love my neighbor as myself. Now, beloved, I'm not going to make this into an allegory, but there is a picture here that I think is worthy of our attention. There is one who loves us unconditionally. You know where I'm going, right? Has there been anyone that has compassion on you as a sinner? Has anyone forgiven you of all the sins you've committed and even all the sins you're going to commit? Who's bound up your wounds? Who's healed your hurts? Who has taken the time to come to you in your darkest moments and say, hey, I love you and I'm here for you. All you have to do is reach out. I'm right here and I'm going to take care of you. Who has spent their precious resources to heal us and to 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 make sure that we gain our strength back. Isn't it Jesus? Isn't it Jesus? And yet, who does this lawyer hate the most? Jesus. Who did the Pharisees hate more and more to it culminated into his crucifixion? They hated Jesus. Who does the world hate, beloved? Jesus. And he's the one that is full of compassion for the hurting, for the despised, for the depressed, for those in their darkest moments. Who's the one that cares the most? Jesus. And yet that's the one the world hates the most. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was smitten and despised. While he hung on that cross, what did his countrymen do but hurl insults at him? While he was paying for all of the sins of God's elect, and even some of those that were hurling those insults later come to faith. Jesus was paying for that guilt and sin. Brothers and sisters, this is a hammer blow to self-righteousness. This is a hammer blow to self-just. When we get up from this worship service and we leave, all we can do, beloved, is say, Lord, my love is pitiful, and yet you accept me in Christ. Though it is something that is of a standard for us to love one another, but beloved, we all know we're fooling ourselves if we think that this is a picture of our love for one another, right? Right? You see, beloved, we can't go and do. It's by grace, it's not by works. Well, what's the purpose of the law? I feel like I need to maybe end here and pick up next week. But, but listen as we close. What's the purpose of the law? Why did Jesus lose the law? Why did he excite this lawyer with the law? Because as the Holy Scripture says, it's the law that excites sin in us. 
when the lawyer was confronted with these moral duties, he should have fallen on his face before God and he should have said, woe is me, I'm a man who is undone and I cannot do these things. Have mercy upon me, O God. I cannot keep your law and be saved. I cannot save myself. And you let that sink in today and this week. And we'll pick this up next week. And we'll talk about the use of the law in bringing people to Christ and what it means after becoming a Christian. Let's pray. And Father, it's important for us to realize our inability. It's important for us to come to grips with, Lord, our waywardness, our lack of strength, our lack of true zeal for the holy things of God. Lord, even in this picture, our lack of love for one another. And Lord, even if we've ever done all of these things one time, what about all the other times we failed and yet stand condemned before your justice? Father, we are thankful for Christ and his payment for sin. We are thankful for Christ because it's in him that we find justice met and kept It's in Christ that we find our strength. It's in Christ that we find our love. It's in Christ, O Lord, where we find our consistency and all of those things that we need, Lord, to be healed and to grow in grace, Lord, and to be even fruitful in the kingdom of heaven. So, Lord, as we consider our place, as we consider everlasting life, Let us die to ourselves. Let us, Lord, die to the law and be alive to grace, grace in Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here, Lord, they believe they're a good person and they believe that by their good works, they they thought they were going to heaven. Lord, this passage condemns them. Lord, impress upon them the call upon you where they are right now. And and Lord, beg for mercy and forgiveness. Lord, let them confess their sins and put their trust in you, Lord, and inherit everlasting life by grace and not by works. Lord, there's nothing wrong with the law, and yet it is not something that we can do now that we're fallen in Adam, but must in Christ be restored and born again. Oh, Father, continue to have mercy upon us. Continue to fill our hearts with love and compassion for all things that are holy, right, and good. Lord, and help us to love you and love one another. Lord, as we seek to do this in the strength of grace, we pray this in Christ's name, amen.